and certain kinds of employers lead to a form of what could be described as educational trafficking, wherein the prospect of educational credentials and potential opportunities for work and settlement in another country induce people into risky activities and contexts where they're actively made vulnerable. Now, while these two cases are starkly different, um, I think they also reveal a similarity that is at the core of thinking about international student migration, and indeed, I think one that we can think about more broadly in relation to youth migration. And that is the connection between youth, time, and transformation. The way in which undertaking the study abroad has become an activity wherein young people around the world imagine that they can transform themselves. Often, our understandings of youth and transformation are very hopeful, and perhaps for good reason, when we hear stories such as Nadir's. Yet we need to recognize that educational migration is also cut through with a range of international inequalities that do not disappear because people cross borders. In fact, arguably, they are entrenched and intensified when people cross borders. Time is critical in our understanding of these intersectional differences. The socially con constructed time of youth, the temporal controls that governments and institutions place on individuals, such as a work visa time limit, and the subjective experience of particular durations of time. For some, like Nadev, educational migration is a period of youth to capitalize on opportunities, while for others like Prana, educational migration come work or exploitation can be described as a waste or loss of youth, as he described it at the end of his interview. So I'm going to come back to Prana and Nadev a little bit later on, but what I want to do before then is try and trace a more, as I've said, a more synoptic view of international <coughs> education. No, I will do this briefly. Um, so, um, while it's really important to recognize that Nadev and um, Prana's account of international student migration is set in contemporary, com contemporary configurations, that is, is oriented around individuals um, seeking out international study, uh, usually paying their own costs or supported by a scholarship, um, that there is another history, if you will, to international study, even within the 20th century. Uh, obviously, people moving across uh, uh, large distances to study, there's nothing new necessarily about that. But I think it's important to give some kind of retrospect, if you will, to make some comparisons to present uh, circumstances. So, as we'll see in the coming uh, discussion, contemporary forms of international student mobility are entangled in global uh, forms of competition, where an education is framed as a commodity in a marketplace of present and future opportunities. You see that in Nadev's case, for example, the idea of getting a master's degree to get money once over here. The post-World War II era provides, I think, a very different reading of educational migration. While, of course, there was movement for study, it wasn't quite as substantial in numbers as it is, as it is today, and it was oriented in different sorts of ways. Rather than individualized, educational migration was commonly associated with the geopolitical aspirations of nations providing education and to the developmental goals of countries that students came from. There are lots of examples of that, of this, from the UK, from the UK to the US to Japan and other locations. One example that I want to briefly touch on here that's particularly relevant to the Asia Pacific is the Colombo Plan. The Colombo Plan was signed in what is now Sri Lanka in 1950. It was a British Commonwealth-based plan wherein countries such as Australia, Canada and New Zealand provided free education to selected students from developing countries in Asia and the Pacific as part of civilizational goals around development in order to ward off the perceived threat of communism, especially in Southeast Asia. Colombo Plan students were trained in agricultural science, governance, economics, civil engineering, health, education, and other disciplines that were deemed critical for economic development. 
the program was heavily entangled in a colonizing, colonizing view and discourse of Asia, whereas British civilizational outposts in the South Pacific, such as New Zealand and Australia, and Canada and North America, were deemed to have a responsibility for bringing Asia into the modern world. So Daniel Oakman's covered this uh, in, his, in his book, Facing Asia, which looks at a history of the Colombo plan. Uh, this is a postage stamp here, a gift from the Australian people. Uh, I think gives us some sense of, of the ways in which educational uh, migration was thought of at that particular point in time. We can also see elements of the sort of colonial discourse in, in this special correspondence about the 2000s um, uh, Colombo plan student. Attractive, shy, 21-year-old Malayan girl um, is excited about having been chosen as a 2000th person to come to Australia for training. She'll be met by the Minister of External Affairs, uh, Mr. R.G. Casey and Mrs. Casey. Another extract from Oakman's book uh, comes from the <coughs> Minister of External Affairs in New Zealand, Frederick Doidge, Doidge in, in 1950. He said to Parliament, New Zealand will share with the undeveloped countries within the area the skills we have learned in our short history in agriculture, education, science, research, etc., etc. The bulk of our work will be amongst the primitive people. We could almost wipe out hunger overnight if we could only get the people of these primitive lands to use scythes instead of steel plows instead of wooden plows. So the reproductive dimension of this migration then can also, can, it also needs to be thought through in these particular colonial configurations. Reproduction here was framed in a modern geopolitical imagination of clearly demarcated and racially enclosed nations. Nations that should be assisted, but that should remain enclosed within, within the territorial bounds, which of course themselves were very, uh, very much uh, established within colonial regimes. These were of course intensely bound to the nation state as a site for development, where an education contributed to societal progress. And despite involving mobility, worked on the presumption that people would remain in their countries of origin or return to the places that they came from. So we have educational migration here, but it's not one that encourages the global mobility of students. It's not one that seeks to um, that's, that seeks to attract people to spend money to invest in themselves. It's rather an investment in in, in, in national development and that reliance on, on economic development. And as I said, there are many other programs we can think of. Uh, from the UK to the US, Japan, Soviet Union, although I obviously don't have enough time to go into that now. So international student mobility today looks very different. Yeah? You can see the, the, the final end of this kind of period of, of international student migration as aid, as a provision of foreign aid running up here until about 1985-1990. And then you see the very significant growth in the number of international students since that time. So this is students studying outside of their citizens, countries of citizenship across the world. That form of um, student mobility is particularly significant in not only not only in and of itself, but also when we compare it to other forms of migration. I could go through a range of different types of migration, labor migration, uh, marriage migration, even refugee migration until very recently, where student migration has probably grown faster than all those types. This is, uh, I've just compared it here to the total overseas born population internationally. And you can see the ways in which, yes, there's been a growth in the number of migrants internationally over the last 20 or so years, but nothing like the tripling of international students you've seen from 1995 through to 2015. The other characteristics that's worth highlighting in a sort of broad sense of contemporary forms of international student migration is that just like its pregenitors in the, um, in, in the mid-20th century, there is, there is a very specific geography to international student mobility. 
So students tend to come from particular places. Uh, region of origin where people generally come from 53% from Asia. Yes, you have Europe here at about 23%, but most international students stay within Europe of, the, of European origin. And Africa, Latin America, and very small numbers from uh, North America, for example, by contrast. At the opposite end of the, of, of the student flow, you see that most students also end up in a particularly narrow range of countries. So the United States, the UK, Germany, France, Australia, and Canada um, occupy over 50%, and uh, obviously you can see in the remaining countries there, the majority of them are also Western uh, for, for quite some time. Or one last capturing of that, four Anglophone, four primary Anglophone destinations here and the way in which China, India, South Korea, Southeast Asia are prominent origins for international students. So most contemporary forms of educational migration involve a situation where students and their families undertake to study abroad because of the opportunities that are offered by that experience individually or for the family. Educational migration is principally self-paid in other words, I and mean, there are exceptions, but largely that's the case. And it is also in that sense caught up in aspirations for individual and familial advancement, either offered by education itself or by the opportunities that emerge around education, as Prana's narrative told us. There are a range of different factors that have contributed to the growth of actual educational migration of this kind, and more broadly to the framing of educational migration as a desirable undertaking. Firstly, I would suggest that there are macro-scale factors, such as economic and cultural globalization. Yes, a general term, but one that signals the ways in which an increasing array of economic, social, and cultural circulations have been facilitated over recent decades. The growth of multinational and transnational economic activities, for example, provides a much wider range of mobile or international employment opportunities, whereas where an international student's experience um, in overseas study can be highly valued. Cultural circulation and the establishment of English as a global lingua franca over the course of the late 20th century should also be seen as significant, as well as triggering uh, the growth of English medium instruction in non-Western countries. Along with such connections has been the circulation of particular policy models, most notably the market-oriented and individualistic logics of neoliberalism that have become pervasive in the way in which education is provided and sold in many countries around the world. Over the course of the last three decades, there has been a cons consistent reductions in state investment in tertiary education, in countries like uh, the UK, particularly on a per-student basis, um, alongside a concentration of funding for research activity, often sourcing from competitive research funds or from private funding, um, in a select number of more highly reputed institutions. International students, I guess, in that sense, form one as one one to gain revenue for uh, institutions that are uh, that are struggling or unable to secure that funding uh, through a national government. So, beyond these macro factors, we can identify a range of, a range of middle or meso level factors that are significant to the growing internationalisation of higher education. One effect of the more market-oriented state policies has been the establishment of competitive models amongst the universities, where institutions seek advantage and prestige through attracting the best students. More research funding or the measurement of these and other features through international ranking metrics. Then, there is the commercial infrastructures that support student mobility, something that BRI has written on, on quite a bit with Johan Lindquist in, in general terms of, of migration infrastructure. In the case of international student migration, we'd be thinking precisely about education agents, such as the agent that helped Prana get his work and study arrangements in order, and helped to advise him about where the best place to study was and why to come to New Zealand. 
Equally significant is that international study has its own reproductive characteristics. As an increasing number of students study abroad, so too do they make claims as friends, family members, senior colleagues, and alumni about the value of overseas study. These kinds of social networks have been shown to be really fundamental in establishing an interest in studying abroad. You hear it from your friends, family, or other people you come in contact, but also in advising where people should end up studying. Lastly, we can speak of micro-level factors that take shape in and through macro and meso forces. One of those factors is the growing recognition of the value of educational credentials generally, and of the distinctive, quali the distinctive qualifications in particular for young people and their families. Often, the pursuit of such qualifications is understood either as a matter of calculated choice or relatively strategic attempt to accumulate cultural capital. Youth, I think, is also an important feature of understanding micro-level drivers of educational migration. There is a significant emphasis generally in popular culture discourse on youth as a period of time wherein it is possible to achieve transformation in social position or wherein already privileged populations can secure intergenerational transfer of status. Travel, I think, is a key feature of this, particularly when we think about international student mobility, because it connects educational undertakings with future, future work and settlement possibilities with the opportunity to experiment, gain experiences, and test individuals uh, in ways that are not only pleasurable, um, but also are seen to enhance those individuals' future opportunities. At a more abstracted level, then, we could argue that educational migration is caught up in the cultivation of desire. <coughs> not desire for particular things, but degree, of paper itself, but rather desire for transformation, for being taken into other worlds that are imagined as desirable through the different kinds of forces that work on our social and cultural understandings of the world. So if we see those as a kind of general, uh, uh, general sorts of factors that are involved in, 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 in generating international student mobility, how then have um, scholars approached this topic or sought to understand it. There are a wide range of ways, and I just want to touch on three very briefly here before addressing some of the emergent trends in international student mobility and then coming back to reproductive dimensions. One of the ways in which people have sought to understand uh, international student mobility is to address what's called decision-making processes. This is particularly common amongst uh, in, in management thinking about international students, and that educational management in particular seeks to increase the number of students in universities. So Cubillo et al. are a good example of this. They've created this decision-making model here where you have purchase intentions at the center and students uh, think about program evaluation, institution image, personal reasons, country image effect, and city effect. This is what I like to call a, a spreadsheet view of the world where individuals approach the possibility of move, movement and other kinds of decisions in their lives by constructing an Excel spreadsheet and thinking about all the different kinds of factors they should consider. It presumes that information flows very easily and smoothly and that there's no blockages in the, in the opportunities that people have to move in the world. You can see that in the way in which Bill talk about this model. They say the consideration, whether conscious or unconscious, on the part of the prospective student of the different elements making up these factors will determine the final choice made by that student, so no social context whatsoever. A much more nuanced account has come from scholars within geography and cognate disciplines who have sought to focus on cultural capital, um, borrowing, of course, from Pierre Bourdieu's social theorizations, um, to look at the ways in which individuals and their families seek to enhance or reproduce social status through the accumulation of cultural capital that can, can then be converted into economic capital. 
So Joanna Waters, who I've mentioned already, uh, is probably one of the, the leading writers in this space, and she talks about two different types of cultural capital that are important in international student mobility. She talks about institutionalized cultural capital, the degree itself, and all the perceived value that goes with that. And she talks about embodied cultural capital, the cultural capital of, of, of cultural traits and behaviors and acts, accents, language ability, and, and those sorts of things. What's really important is if, if we're going to draw on this kind of thinking, as, as Waters does, is that we recognize changes in uh, the, the configuration of higher education. Because, of course, Paul Dieu was very literally writing about very, very similar sorts of things some time ago. So important for Waters here is, is, is when we look at particular locations and we try and apply this model of focusing on cultural capital, we recognize that in places like China, India, and South Korea, where there is significant amounts of international student mobility, that there has already prior to that been an increased participation in higher education. So there are more people getting degrees locally, which creates an increased need um, for people who have access to financial resources uh, to, to gain distinction in other ways, such as going abroad. Or alternatively, where privileged students are unable to access uh, prestigious local institutions, they then seek to go abroad to resolve that problem. Lastly, um, we'd also obviously want to think not only about international study itself, in particular ways in which people, students enter into international study, but also how that, feed, how that um, emerges in particular um, other, other educational situations prior to higher education and then feeds into labor markets. So this is a, um, a figure put together by Finlay et al. when they look at um, um, uh, student mobility from the UK uh, and, and the growing trend of British students going abroad. So they map out this model here where they see elite private schools as something that leads most students into world-class higher education institutions and some into some other elite institutions, whereas state schools, uh, students are largely going to go into undifferentiated state higher education institutions. And then, of course, leading into quite different labor market opportunities, from a transnational capitalist class at the top to low-skilled and unskilled work at the bottom. Okay? So I think this is again quite useful for thinking more in a more nuanced way about uh, international student mobilities and its reproductive dimensions. But it's also got problems for two reasons. One I'll come to in a second because it doesn't take into account, I think, more diverse forms of student mobility, but also because it's a relatively linear um, sort of temporal pattern going on here. People are in a particular situation, they go to a particular kind of institution, and they come out at the other end uh, at a particular point in the labor market. So I think that's that, that we, need to, we need to recognize that there can be much more possibility for interruption in student mobility. Um, but I also think it's really important to recognize the diversification of uh, international student mobility in recent years. Something reflected in both of the narratives that I offered up at the beginning of this talk, and then I'll come back to it in a second. But one of the things we've seen in recent years is that destinations of international students have started to shift. So I mentioned to you at the outset that the, the majority of students still go to Anglophone or Western countries in general. You can see those here on the left. You'll note that most of them, aside from Australia and the US, are relatively um, stable in terms of total international student numbers, a bit of growth in Canada as well. By contrast, there are a number of new emerging destinations, particularly in the last five to ten years, and particularly in Asia, that are starting to attract a significant number of international students. So how do we understand the movement of international students to these places? Who goes here? What sort of courses do they study in? What sorts of value is reproduced in those places? 
is in situations like Nadir, which seems to replicate the standard elite Western institution model, or is it something more like Prana, which is a more marginal um, kind of case? I'm just keeping an eye on the time. So I'm just going to very briefly touch on this. There, there, are two, um, there, are, there are two dimensions to these new geographies that we've been able to observe. One is uh, a situation where formerly elite national universities start to try to remake themselves as global institutions and attract international students. <coughs> and so this, uh, this is a map here of a, a series of case studies that uh, came from a project on uh, global universities in East Asia and their attempts to attract international students. So we looked at nine universities in the region. Uh, what we looked at was the way in which these universities were rebranding themselves as international uh, institutions uh, and the experiences of students moving through them. What's interesting is that rather than simply advancing a particular localized model of um, higher education that then could be made global, many of these institutions actually imported uh, English medium instruction um, and models of education and campus development that actually replicated uh, the sorts of uh, things that could be observed uh, in elite Western institutions. So in a lot of these contexts, international students coming from within the region uh, would go to these institutions and then be taught in English. By, uh, by professors who might be from those uh, countries or might be from abroad. Um, we also saw this kind of replication of these kind of branding techniques that we can see in universities around the world. This is Tokyo here, discover our people, and of course we want to demonstrate that our, our student population is very, very diverse. Another form of transformation that we've seen is, is new urban developments, and particularly branch campus developments, uh, that have incorporated uh, universities from other parts of the world. So this is, an, this is a map image here of the Iskander Edu City development in Johor in southern Malaysia, and this is Newcastle University based in Malaysia. In fact, their medicine program is see. There are several of these developments. Johor in Malaysia is one. Uh, Songdo in South Korea is another. There's some in Dubai and other parts of the um, United Arab Emirates. Places where you have overseas branch campuses develop. You might have local students going to those institutions. You might then also have international students from proximate regions attending there too. I'm going to skip that. Um, okay. So I think there are, there are a range of things to think about when we see these emergent patterns of international student mobility. One of them that's raised by Fan Leha, who's uh, written quite a lot on the, on the latter example, the transnational higher education example, is that um, while it's interesting to observe the, uh, the, the ways in which branch campuses get established abroad, and you see, say, British universities turning up in Malaysia, there are questions to answer here about the quality or value of education. She uses a quite provocative term of mediocrity to describe a lot of the education that goes on in branch campuses. And this image, I think, is um, particularly indicative of this, where you can save 10% on your fees or 12% or 15%, depending on how many people you recruit to go to the University of Wollongong in Dubai. She suggests that um, not only institutions, but students themselves are largely complicit in the mediocrity that occurs here because they buy into an idea of the West as um, something that is desirable and then needs to be reproduced um, in branch campuses. So as I say, quite a provocative argument. Regardless of your position on that particular argument, there are questions to ask about the portability of these degrees. So if one thing that we observe in international student migration is that degrees offer distinction to international students, then what happens when students are going to new destinations that are less recognized? Well, actually, the outcomes can be quite uneven. Now, Deb's case suggests that 
at the appropriate, well-recognized institution, you can become very successful, as he has. In other cases, such as this individual who studied at National Taiwan University, a prominent university in Taiwan, but one that didn't have cross-country recognition in Hong Kong, this student in our research on alumni mobility said um, that approximately 70% of employers did not recognize their degree. So they come back after finishing their degree and they cannot get an appropriate job because no one recognizes that institution. And she, the, the individual notes in particular that people didn't really know anything about the UK or the US, but they would recognize those institutions anyway. So we start to see the kind of the way in which that established geography of, um, of international student mobility can continue to influence um, uh, can continue to influence the value of different degrees. Okay, so let me come back then to reproduction migration. Here's a little blurb from you know, the. the <coughs> so educational migration, I think, offers significant potential to advance our advance our discussions of reproduction migration. And in turn, I think that the concept of reproduction migration makes it possible to ask some new questions of international student mobility that perhaps have been lacking a little bit. I'm quite taken by this term, reproduction migration, and in particular the way in which it claims to foreground the production of life itself in migration. I think we can benefit from expanding our view of reproduction migration here. Not only situating it in relation to, yes, bringing different types of migration together, but also in relation to a longer uh, history of literature on social reproduction, both within Marxist and feminist um, discourses or literature. So the notion of social reproduction, of course, has its origins in Marxist thought, and in particular in relation to the need uh, to supply labour for the continuance of relations of production. Um, as Mahan and Strauss know, feminist scholarship takes this much further, not least through the re recognition that, firstly, gender divisions of labour involved in production and reproduction are not natural, of course, but are rather produced through historically and socially constructed conceptions, that the activities involved in sustaining and reproducing daily life are indeed encouraging migration, and not instinctive, but rather they're geographical, historical, uh, and, so, uh, and influenced by social conditions. And the labor of reproduction is not only private, but is central to the character of economic production in a given time in society. These basic presuppositions about social reproduction turn our attention to its contemporary application in relation to migration and international student mobility specifically. One of the things that needs to be taken into account in thinking through reproduction is a consideration of the ways in which life's work alters in relation to particular social and historical conditions. So consider that shift in time from the mid-20th century model of international student mobility to contemporary forms of commodified international student mobility. I'm not going to read through this quote here, so if you want to just have a quick look, really interesting work by feminist geographers Mitchell and Howe, looking at life's work as a form of thinking about social reproduction. So this broad conception of social reproduction, thinking more broadly about it, I think, folds neatly into the kind of conceptualization that I think is being thought about in this particular seminar series. I also think that it offers scope for considering how international student mobility and reproduction migration intersect. And I'm thinking in particular in three ways. One, I think if we think about reproduction migration in relation to international student mobilities, it allows us to draw attention to the multiple scales and actors involved in educational migration or student mobility specifically. It allows us to think about how, um, or to consider the ways in which educational migration articulates with other forms of migration. And allows us to think carefully about the temporality, the timing of student migration. So 
let me just wrap these up by coming back, each of these things up by coming back to Nadia Gampana. So drawing attention to the multiple scales and actors um, involved in constituting the reproductive dimensions of student mobility. I think here we can think about the state's interest in commodifying facets of reproduction, um, especially, but not only, education. Uh, here, clearly, as a revenue source, um, or as a way to enhance uh, university status. We can think about the ways in which nation states view certain kinds of educational migrants as desirable, as designer migrants, and others as low status migrants. So we think of Nadia as somebody who's quite desirable, and Prana as somebody who is not and there's accordingly offered different kinds of migration statuses. The ways that we can think about the ways in which this is articulated the lives of young people on the move through the work of mesolateral actors like education agents and migration agents as well. So if we think about Nadia's case, it, 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 we might think about the ways in which educational migration emerges across generations and through forms of family culture and that orient individuals towards particular kinds of practices and study environments. Remember that Nadiv uh, talked about the ways in which his parents instilled the, the importance of, of education. To an extent, Nadiv's case also provides a sense of what Fortier would call habitus, a sense of knowing the rules of the game, and including knowing the rules of the game of internationalized higher education, and the way in which this is reproduced in family life. But there is also much to say here for the ways in which unanticipated things have redirected Nadir through his technology course, the move to work at Samsung, the global scholarship and the rise of Korean technology firms, all articulate with creating possibilities that then can be understood um, as taking Nadir forward in the world. So we can see then, particularly when we compare to Prana's case, how in other instances those opportunities are blocked. So taking reproduction seriously also means that we need a lens beyond the specific form of migration. I think one of the problems with international student, the literature on international student mobility, is that it's tended to just only talk about student mobility and to talk about nothing else. To talk only about the accumulation of cultural capital, to talk only about um, students as making calculated decisions about where to go. I think there's a need to consider the ways in which different forms of reproduction um, articulate with other migratory patterns. Most notably, the ways in which international students are also workers and positioned in distinct ways in relation to labor markets. So Prana's narrative, the marginal case, the one who ended up working much more than he did studying, is a stark example of this. As I noted at the outset, Prana sought to undertake study in New Zealand not because of claims about the particular value of education. That wasn't a concern. He had, in fact, he had an IT qualification, which was probably equivalent to what he got through study. It was rather the opportunity that he and his parents saw for personal advancement and opportunities to work overseas and to get on to a settlement through a residency permit. The reproduction, reproductive dimension of educational migration, in this case then, is less concerned about particular forms of credential or socialization, which is what we would normally read from a Bourgeoisian perspective, but rather to the legal opportunity to work and seek long-term residence rights. Right. This imagining of possible of the possibility of education come labor migration was actively cultivated by Prana's peers who were already trying to achieve similar things. It was cultivated by education and migration agency that supported his migration. You see here their advertisement, study for one year, work for three years. It was cultivated by the Educational Institute here, Queen's Academic Group, not a university, as you can quite clearly see, who programmed their study courses so that you could study for two days and work for five, even though it was illegal to do so, and by the New Zealand government in its promotion of these, this approach to international study, saying why New Zealand study options live and work and all the possibilities 
um, that you have in this particular kind of context. We could argue here then that the claims of reproductive potential and educational migration are deployed in order to facilitate the arrival and presence of a low status, low pay and disposable workforce because Parliament is not the only one in this kind of situation, while also at the same time securing business profits and tax revenue. That Prana recognises own complicity in this scheme, I think, and you might have got a sense of that in the way I, I talked about it before, he certainly acknowledged complicity, um, reveals, I think, the standardisation of this model of migration. In other instances, such as Nadir's, these connections exist too, because of the ways in which governments, institutions and businesses see people like Nadir as the designer migrant, as the one we want to keep. So we have uh, Prana on the one hand, who was here for a short period of time to be disposed of, and Nadev is the one here um, who's, after going through his education, is desirable and should be retained both by employer and by the nation state. So lastly, I think that a focus on reproduction migration does much to advance our understanding of the temporal progression of international student mobility. Too often, international student mobility has been read as resulting from a singular, individual decision made at a particular point in time, or as part of an almost inevitable linear progression of privileged people as they move through an education to work transitions. And you particularly see that in that kind of uh, neoclassical account of decision making. Taking reproduction seriously demands that we examine the temporal prospects and progression of reproduction, exploring how the aspiration or desire for migration, including educational migration, emerge over long periods of time, relate to diverse actors and link into varying possibilities <coughs> of the future. As both Nadeev and Prana's uh, narrative suggested, there's no simple linear line here. Um, past experiences uh, matter quite a lot, um, and we see significant uncertainties and divergences emerge within their accounts. I think it's useful just to take two lines from them. We've already heard from Nadeev when I read from his quotations before, but he talked a lot about acting on the future. He talked about capitalizing on things, taking up opportunities. So his particular view of the future and of time that is manipulable is something that can be worked on. By contrast, Prana spoke of a waste of youth. He spoke about six years and that it disappeared. He talked about, if only I hadn't spent that money where I, in the way that I did, or borrowed the money and then spent it in the way that I did, I could live like a rich man. Okay, so a waste of youth is a kind of, uh, is a kind of account that's offered here. And of course, he talks also about not being able to marry his girlfriend who we met in New Zealand because she's from a different religion, so it goes back to India and he cannot do that. So it's a waste of time. Waste my time in the last five years. Youth, if you will, has disappeared. So international student mobility specifically and educational migration are geographically and modally diverse, as you can see. They involve a wide range of forces and actors. It is, as a result, very hard to account for them in a way that is encompassing both the contextual and conceptual variety of, of, of issues and approaches that we can see there. Um, I wanted to, instead, rather than trying to you know, encapsulate all of that, finish by suggesting that while a focus on reproduction can assist our understanding of educational migration, so too do the insights that emerge from international student mobility advance our understanding of the reproductive dimensions of migration. I think, for example, if we think about the two cases that I've offered you here, we say, see the ways in which temporality in terms of intergenerational um, relations and particular forms of migration, including the conditioning of migration, can act to both um, um, highlight but also entrench um, forms of inequality. Uh, so migration doesn't become a route out of poverty, even if Prana and his parents imagined that, it actually makes those differences between him and Nadir much greater than they would have been in the 
the first instance. Understanding educational migration decisions beyond the specific dimension of a credential is also something um, that I think is really, really important here. One of the flaws of the early literature on educational migration, particularly the neoclassical work, but also the Borgesian-inspired work, is that it tended to position that credential, that degree, as a key strategic goal of educational migrants, without necessarily situating this in the emergence of educational migration over long periods of time, or simply an opportunism in, in Prowner's cases, as I've, as I've highlighted. I think this is something we also need to think about if we look at other forms of migration in terms of their reproductive dimensions that we don't only then incorporate a focus on reproduction, social reproduction, as the new goal of migrants. Not only money now and social reproduction. Actually, we need to think about the ways in which social reproduction is caught up in the production of certain kinds of things as desirable, certain undertakings as desirable, and certain ways of being in the world as desirable. Where do those ideas come from? What kinds of social formations do they emerge from? What kinds of uncertainties occur in people's migration trajectories and the like? Lastly, I think the forward-looking dimension of international student <coughs> mobility also draws our attention to the temporality of reproduction. I think reproduction must be temporal, right? it must um, occur over a duration. But we also need to make sure that we don't read reproduction in a linear fashion. You know, think past, present, future. Rather, we need to think about present actions in relation to um, conceptions of the past and, and recollections of what's possible, as well as varying expectations of what, what can be done in the future. It is easy, I think, to see students and their families as oriented um, to the future in this manner because education is seen as a means to an end. But we would be wise to recognise that other forms of migration, labour, marriage, care and others, are also rarely an end in themselves that often take someone's success. <laughs> the focus of a particular migration is not usually the desired object, but rather it is desire for being taken into another literal and figurative world, I would suggest, that generates <coughs> and sustains much reproduction migration, including student mobility, but a wide range of other types. Yeah. I'll leave. Yeah. Thank you very much.